Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Joseph Montgomery is an artist based out of New York City who was born in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1979. He got his undergraduate degree from Yale in 2001, and in 2007, he received his MFA from Hunter College. He has exhibited his work at The Hague in the Netherlands, at Paula Cooper Gallery, Peter Bloom Gallery, Laurel Gitlin, Mass Mocha, and many more places. In 2009, he curated Don't Perish at Leo Koenig, and in 2008, he curated Rose-Colored Glasses at Gavin Brown's Enterprise at Passerby. I met up with Joe at his Long Island City studio to talk about art, music, and his well-traveled past. Here's our conversation. So, before digging deep into your past, what are, what are you working on now? What are, what's the new work? Well, the new work is uh, all transfer-based. Uh, it's a pigment transfer process on the canvas, mm -hmm. and they start with drawings of myself, Actually, I imagine myself uh, on the radio. Actually, uh, I have a long hair and a large nose. I think, and it's a uh, kind of a, a practice of making a quick sketch of who I am from a different perspective. It's uh -huh. like uh, I think of it in terms of uh, the context of watching the mind. So, watching myself, creating some kind of version of how I imagine myself that's exaggerated yeah. in a sense and so emphasizing certain features like a long long hair and a, and a large nose for instance and those become the two features that uh, end up being the large part of the drawing and the drawing I then photograph and vectorize mm -hmm. and um, drop into Illustrator and then um, I'm, I'm a trial and error artist so I you know I print a lot of these and then I'm, I'm figuring out the colors that I really in, enjoy and find that work uh, to begin with. Yeah. And the goal is to make a single, single move um, painting with them, which would be a single layer of this transfer. And the transfer um, is very uh, liquidy and manipula manipulatable uh, while it is being transferred and while it is drying. So. Uh, the emphasizing changing the shape of that drawing, changing the shape of that face and head um, by manipulating the canvas with my hands and um, moving around the liquid causes stretch marks or wrinkles or distortions in the drawing. But so these are what the one thing I love when I first saw them is I don't know how you're making it. I like I thought they were paintings that look like plastic bags that are overlaid or like films that are laid on top of each other where the mm -hmm. color's seeping through. And then I saw on the one, there's a little bubble. Mm -hmm. So I knew it was something that was, or I felt like it was something that was pasted down on it. Are you, so you're making drawings, are they line drawings? Are they pencil drawings? Are they worth color? They're just pencil drawings in a notebook uh, that I usually only make while I'm traveling or in between spaces. Yeah. And then the, uh, yeah, then I just take a picture with my phone, mm -hmm. clean it up a little bit in Photoshop or Illustrator, and then it becomes this uh, much smoother line, much, much, I don't know, almost more professional looking in a sense. But the, yeah, it begins with just a pencil drawing. That's so cool. So they're self-portraits in a way. In a way, like yeah. Mutated mm -hmm. self-portraits. Mutated and, and, yeah, caricaturized, I guess. But they're completely abstract when you're looking... Well, when you look at it, you would never know. Right. I, and I think that, that that had always been a part of um, the work that I had been doing up until now, which was a, was a collage process to build in a painting. Yeah. And those images that I was building there often... I often thought of, of having a goal of having some kind of nose in there, yeah. for whatever cool. reason. Well, the the shim pieces that you were doing, uh -huh. you turned into an animation where shims were moving. They anthropomorphized, right? Yes. So that's something that that was kind of a literal 
move from sculptural you know pieces that became the human figure were the earlier sculptures figurative to you or was it more of just formal uh, they well I'm both often I'm I'm interested in abstract painting but I'm not interested in it in itself I wanted to include some kind of psychological space yeah in there so I've often felt that it's they represent something and that representation might be my relationship to painting and mm-hmm. so that would then include having some kind of figure in there uh, often as a reference to myself yeah or the context I'm in yeah and uh, the the dolls the figures that were made out of shims were very much a um, anthropomorphizing of that that's much more legible yeah. than any other way that I had done it yet since then right or before then so before I forget these the technique of these so you're printing you're making prints I print onto a, a plastic with an emulsion oh, that cool. then uh, it's all water-based right it's out well it's I use I'd use an alcohol based transfer oh okay so the alcohol interacts with the emulsion yeah and and you peel away the plastic and the pigment stays oh, onto cool. the onto the transferred surface how yeah. did you come up with that how did you learn that process well I started it last summer I was preparing for a show in Holland at a small gallery that uh, didn't have the budget to ship my work and mm-hmm. wanted me to make it there and I I've never worked anywhere outside of my own studio before and I usually am am surrounded by the objects and and bits and pieces that I collage with Mm -hmm. or all the shims that I use to build those works with and I was a little uh, frightened by the prospect of going somewhere new and starting from scratch right I've always responded to something yeah and I was interested in making a surface that was uh, flat and interesting enough to respond to mm-hmm. um, before I had responded to some kind of earnest abstraction that I had painted on panels when I was in grad school mm-hmm. uh, or uh, painted on top of other people's work or um, something that was uh, more like a conversation yeah and I wanted to make a new body of work and I needed to have that um, index on which to work and the transfer process, I'm not sure exactly when I became first aware of it, but I knew that I wanted to uh, work with a specific palette, and the, mm-hmm. the best way for me to experiment with color was on the computer and making prints onto paper. And I had first thought, oh, I'll just collage the paper. And then I thought, well, I would rather just print on something and skip that step of cutting and pasting. Yeah. And so got to this researching transfer processes and, and this one became the most uh, interesting based on the there's a lot of chance involved with it yeah. um, based on how it turns out and there's a lot of uh, I know there's implied action based on how how things dry and how they move mm-hmm. before they dry so that's how I came to the transfer process and then have worked with it for the past year and then I'm modifying it into this more recent work which is yeah. a different palette and a different uh, base drawing. Well, it's, it, the really interesting thing about the way that you're making and the way they look is that you're using technology, you're using the computer to sort of sketch or n- and then the process of transferring, but then when you see them in person, they look really fluid and organic. Like they just, it's almost like you poured these little thin films and they reacted on their own and mm-hmm. mixed around. And mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It doesn't, sure. it, it doesn't feel like there's a lack of hand in it, but it also feels like it's doing its own thing to an mm-hmm. extent. I guess that's part of the chance too. That's you yeah. know, and and part of the process. It's a cool combination to to combine chance and the rigor of the computer and the pixels and the you know like things right. being kind of mapped out through technology. But then you're releasing it onto yeah. the canvas. Yeah, I mean, I think that that it, and that also relates to uh, a certain level of automatism that. Uh, I've been working with, especially with the shim works, which is uh, is an ordered production. It's a it's a it's a way of building a painting that can be prescribed in a sense. Yeah. And so I've, with a friend, developed algorithms that um, can provide me all of the options for those, mm-hmm. and that includes the dolls as well, like what all the different body pops possibilities, all the different widths, the sizes 
the number of shims that are involved. And so I think that that, that prescriptive or that automatic action is um, quite interesting to me in terms of painting because I'm not interested in painting as, a, as expression. I'm more interested mm -hmm. in painting as a, um, as a verb, as a, as a possibility, as a tool to keep working. Yeah. And the, and the working aspect of it is much more interesting to me than, than an expression aspect of it. Well, when you, uh, when you started making artwork, I imagine when you were younger, mm -hmm. I mean, was, was your entry into it through drawing? I mean, most people it is, but sure. was your entry into it through drawing? And were you painting when you were young? Or? Well, I, I started becoming interested in art in high school, mm -hmm. and it was, a, it was a kind of a safe space for me. Which, you, where all, did you go to high school? I went to school in Nashville at an all-boys school. It was secular, uh -huh. um, and they had a motto called gentleman gentleman scholar athlete and I, I was athletic but the athletic teams were um much more cliquish than any other group yeah of people and i had i came in in the middle of uh, eighth grade i remember and then these boys were uh very much socially connected to each other to begin with and yeah. it was a hard i think i graduated i graduated with 90 other people for my senior class, and uh, it was a hard group to break into. So in study hall or lunchtime, the art studios were a place where I could f find solace and uh, a certain level of acceptance. Yeah. And uh, the first drawings that I made in there were, they had just stacks and stacks of National Geographics and just drawing from photographs. Yeah. And then painting from photographs eventually Right. And did you have uh, a good art teacher? I did. Yeah, I was very much like my first mentor. Yeah. In a lot of ways, and she encouraged me to continue with it and and explore it, and uh, started to take figure drawing classes at a local uh, place called Cheekwood mm -hmm. uh, in Nashville, and uh, yeah, I just there were so many possibilities. Did you grow yeah. up in Nashville? I grew up in New Orleans and then Nashville. When, when did you move to Nashville? I moved to Nashville in 1992. I, I mean, had, 92. So how how I, old were you? And I graduated high school in 1997. I was I was a year I was a year behind in high school, so I was I want to say I was 14. Yeah, man. If you didn't have the roadmap for a musical childhood, I mean, New Orleans <laughs> and Nashville. Yeah. You know. Oh, I know. It was I. I mean, I played guitar and mandolin. Growing up, my father was always had mus musical instruments. He's mm -hmm. a uh, pastor uh -huh. in the Episcopal Church and would play music f as part of his um, job. Yeah. Uh, so I always I always did it, and I felt like I was getting pretty good at some point, especially in in Nashville. Like every young person there played guitar, or wanted to be in a band. Yeah. But uh, I spent a lot of time on it, and. I remember going down to dinner one night and we had some, they had a friend of theirs over and they're like, oh, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, I want to be a musician. And my father's piped in and said, well, if you were going to be a musician, you'd be much better than you are right now. Oh, dream crush. <laughs> dream crush. The dream crush. Yes, totally crush. That's not very spiritual. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, and so uh, we, yeah, that was the end of that. Oh, sense. really? So you, you took it? I took it uh, very yeah. personally, yeah. And, uh, but I also had this other thing going on, which was the artwork that I was, or just like being interested in, in making paintings. And, and uh, at that point it was very much expression based mm -hmm. and it was a place to be expressive. Yeah. Well, moment. when you were a kid and listening to music, what were you listening to? Because when I was young, all the music we listened to was that kind of expressive fighting, like you know, the parents, what your parents are saying, or that kind of, I know it felt, you know, punk, we listen to punk hardcore yeah. and rap and stuff like that. And it, yeah. was, it was just this way to feel connected to something outside of what your parents or what older people were into. I mean, what, how oh, was right. that dynamic? Well, we were, yeah, we were in New Orleans, we were trading cassette tapes of Too Short and mm -hmm. NWA and uh, Two Live Crew. But in the midst of, I, my mother was very much like a Tipper Gore follower and, mm -hmm. and uh, she was very much interested in, in the, the parental advisory label yeah, yeah. and this is evil. It was also coming up growing up in a religious household 
uh, not being allowed to play Dungeons and Dragons is yeah. like this is a, a, a gateway to hell in yeah. some way or the devil is going <laughs> to possess you. Um, so you were really conscious of that. I was very conscious of I mean, of I think, yeah. no, my parents were pretty liberal and, you know, they didn't, they let me watch what, you know, it was pretty loose growing up, but I didn't play my NWA around. I got, you know. Oh, no, I would, I would wear, him. I had a Walkman that when I mowed the lawn would, would listen to my um, dirty rap yeah. on, on my headphones. And that was like, you know, it was also, it was a kind of sex education at that point, yeah. too. And <laughs> Not a specific kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah. But for you know twelve to fourteen, it was uh, yeah, it was definitely an awakening, and it became that much more desirable because of the labels right. on it. And yeah. I remember, you know, going to when CDs had come out and going to the music store and browsing and and trying to figure out a way. I remember "Use Your Illusion" came out by Guns N' Roses, mm-hmm. and like trying to figure out a way to buy that. I remember convincing them to buy me uh, in excess kick when that came out you everything you're naming were uh-huh. like seminal <laughs> yeah. cassettes that i had just yeah. for the record <laughs> yeah they, well they were seminal for me too yeah. but listening to it in the minivan or whatever driving around in my there was uh the devil inside remember that oh, song yeah. and having oh, i'm sure that my parents <laughs> you know my mom then that song came on just my mom being like what is this music yeah, yeah. what is this for uh that and then trying to kind of use Columbia Records, you know, signing up for that and mm-hmm. as a way, but that never quite fulfilled the uh, the edges of that music Yeah, for me. I love that, testing the waters with the parents, too, because I remember when I got um, the Beastie Boys, you know, their first cassette, mm-hmm. and there was, you know, there was the Rick, it was like the rock and roll influence on it. Mm-hmm. So I remember playing it for my dad and be like, this is cool, right? You know, yeah. like, he could get into this, yeah. as opposed to some of their other stuff, you know. And he was... You know, he's like, oh, yeah, it's pretty good. He's like, I don't know about the lyrics, though. And that put that, you know, question in my head. Like, maybe I shouldn't be sharing this stuff with them. Yeah. So yeah. I kept, like, the Ghetto Boys and, you know, NWA and Public Enemy uh, and all that stuff to myself. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was hard to, yeah, it was hard to relate to parents with that, that yeah. music. Um, I had a really cool uncle also at the time who was a huge deadhead. And he had sort of planted that seed when I was 12 or 13. Yeah. And, like... Uh, it was a lifestyle that I saw whenever mm-hmm. he visited, and I was always curious about that aspect of it, and that was also a little more acceptable into uh, my parents' generation. It was okay to listen to in public, in a sense. Yeah. Um, it wasn't the li- a lifestyle that they necessarily approved of, but it there was, was a context for it, though, probably for them. Yeah. Whereas the new st- like rap is just like from another planet right it's like what is this you know (laughs) yes and lyrically yeah a little different than the dead yeah and uh in the context of new orleans and nashville i think jazz and country music uh and bluegrass they were all things that i sort of got into a bit yeah over time but i didn't necessarily create community from them in any way i mean a lot of my community that I started to develop was, well, I mean, it doesn't really even matter at those ages, but uh, since then it's been um, more dedicated to art and and meeting people who are involved with art. And music comes up less among my, my group of friends. Yeah. And I'm not sure why that is, but I think it's, a, I don't know, it's a, there's so many options. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a little f- overwhelming. I think when I stopped, because, you know, when, when I was in school, I played music. Mm-hmm. And then when you know I moved here, there was less time for music, and then the people in the band kind of moved in different places, and it just dissolved. And I don't know if I would still, you know, I think collaborating and, and with musicians and that keeping that aspect of things mm-hmm. within my artwork has just kept that alive for me. Mm. Not that I wouldn't be music is so important to me, so mm-hmm. I think I'd be just as big of a fan. But you know, it's just when it engages in your day-to-day differently, like when you're working with people on stuff, mm-hmm. it just, it becomes such a huge part of, you know, at least in my studio, in my mind, when mm-hmm. I'm, like, working, it's, mm-hmm. it's just always there. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's kind of fun to be able to merge the two things together, mm-hmm. you know. Have you ever, and that leads me to a question that I was thinking about when looking at these, going from the sculptures to the animations that you were doing, do you ever visualize these things moving or any sort of... Because they are, 
going through the process of the computer before you're making them here as paintings. Mm -hmm. Do you ever think about these things in moving space? I do. I I think that they, um, I mean, for me, they they live in more of a a cartoon, like a storyboard context. Like, oh, here's this character, and then the the character's doing something else afterwards, and the character after that is doing something else afterwards. And... uh, I don't, I don't imagine animating. I mean, an, animation for me was a. Uh, I wasn't making it myself. It was a. Yeah. It was a prescribed um, description to somebody else who would then fabricate it for me. Mm-hmm. So I think that this, this, is. I think that there's a there's a brief they they exist momentarily in a sense. I like the quickness of them. Yeah. And I think that animating them in my mind right now at least would. Would uh, they would have to occupy a space for a much longer period of time, right. and they are just. I mean, they begin as sketches, and I would want to keep making sketches and not get too devoted to one one specific image. Yeah. But to proliferate the images over and over again. Yeah, it's almost like these are little frozen moments, and whatever that thing is in uh-huh. that time of its lifespan or how it became to be, it's like you've just frozen it at that point. Right. Know? Which is kind of interesting to. It has a feeling of movement without moving necessarily. Yeah, and I—I th- I mean, the other—the other part that goes back to talking about automation is that the, you know, given all the choices that are there, especially, um, like if you were to go to the website, the Shim Index website, and, and to see all the possibilities for all the shims you could make, mm-hmm. given a set of rules, that the the important point in that is that you dis- you make a decision, you choose one over the other yeah and so that the action of choice becomes um for me very evocative or or very important in terms of describing what aesthetics are and what um value is and what satisfaction is and so these uh making lots of them um and then making a choice about which is good and which Mm -hmm. is bad or which survives and which is destroyed and then also you know that the goal is of, of right now to be to make this like single layer quick image mm-hmm. and then if that fails if it, if it doesn't satisfy me as that first layer then it then it be, gets a second layer maybe then it gets collaged on and, and looking around there's some that are sort of built built out in that yeah. way yeah. just to s- i would say it's it's optimistic you know like every image can be saved in some way yeah, yeah. taken to another level taken to another level yeah. or, or changed into something more pleasing or more interesting yeah so when you were in nashville and getting into art i mean you found your niche within that environment what made you decide to did you go to school for it well i yeah i, w- I applied to art schools and to yale where yeah. you and i met mm-hmm. and uh I, I guess I, I made an active decision actually that, you know, I, going to art school I felt like would, would limit the number of people that I met, and the kind of people I would yeah. meet, and going to a university getting a liberal arts education would, be more expansive mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, who my friends are and, and what I know, and, uh, and I, you know I don't know the opposite if I had made the other choice what it would be like yeah. but uh, I'm happy with my choice of doing that and you know and, and it challenged me it was like oh all these other options are out there for a while I changed my major and I mm-hmm. uh, was interested in biology and forestry and uh, actually I think I got back into it when you and I first met in the printmaking studio yeah. and it, it's actually it really forefronted drawing again for me in a, in a process and sort of meeting a teacher who I connected with, for whatever reason, Ruth. Oh yeah, Lauer, who's I mean an outlier in a lot of ways in the art world, and yeah. Uh, but I had a, I liked, I don't know, I liked everything about her and and the way that she taught things, and again that space and that printmaking studio in the A and A building, which was so weird. It was very <laughs> strange yeah. facilities, but amazing you know because i've seen a new building and a new building looks like what an art building should look like i guess but that building had so many nooks and crannies it was such a weird place to be and and i really in retrospect i really enjoyed 
you know, being in that building for two years. Yeah, I th- also think it was interesting. I remember when we first met and we were, you hung out a lot with the architects. There was a group of yeah. architects in that class. Yeah. And that overlap was really interesting and the way that they worked yeah. was fascinating to me. They're, I don't know, I felt like they stayed up all night every night oh they were they lived in there <laughs> yeah. yeah they lived in there and they were just like uh excited and interested and intellectual yeah and uh they were great to have to come down to the studio too and at that point i was doing stuff that was kind of somewhat architectural so i think mm-hmm. it was it was a good discussions we used to have yeah. when i was part when i picked you know graduate school part of it was that you know i applied to a few places and got into different places and most were art schools mm-hmm. you know Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought going to a place where there's other stuff, there's like amazing libraries, amazing other departments, that that would really, you know, be valuable to me. Right. And it turned out it's, I was actually, I made one right decision when it came <laughs> to that. I mean, I don't know if I went to art school, how that would have changed things, but I, I feel like I got a nice rounded, like the fractals class I took there was mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. And it fed my work, but it was in a total, you know, you wouldn't get that, I don't think, at your standard art school no graduate not at all uh, experience so yeah little things like that make a big difference so you went there then you went to grad school yeah I took a few years off I went I moved to the west coast Mm -hmm. and then came back to New York in 2004 to go to Hunter yeah what what made you go back and forth well I mean there were a few people in my undergrad who we're moving to New York mm-hmm. and, and somewhat in an, in an art context, but I also felt like it was a, it was a place for finance and, and iBanking and, and the people. And the lifestyle that I was interested in was, uh, and the attitude that I was interested in was, I thought a more West Coast lifestyle. My girlfriend at the time was from Oakland and mm-hmm. um, I had a good friend from Portland, Oregon, who got me a job at the private school that he went to teaching humanities mm-hmm. and I just you know I visited a few times before graduating and really liked it yeah and it was a yeah it was like a, a playground in a lot of ways and that became its detriment too because it was not a competitive environment and it wasn't it was stimulating to a certain extent but it was not very diverse it wasn't challenging mm-hmm in any way. Comfortable? Was, yeah, it was yeah. extremely comfortable. Well, you solved that riddle by yeah. coming <laughs> yeah. here. Yes. The exact yeah. opposite of comfort. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, yeah, it was good, and I never, you know, I have been, you know, I look, I look for mentorships wherever I am, mm-hmm. and I think that it's, you know, based on that high school experience, it's important to have some kind of context or somebody to or people to bounce ideas off of, yeah. and, and I never got those conversations there. It's really important, yeah. you know. It's when you spend any time you go away or you spend time away from that, you know, it you realize what that means, you know. Right. So, so you moved back. You went to grad school here. Mm-hmm. Well, how was your grad school experience? Uh, grad school experience was so-so. Uh, I mean, Hunter was a very large program. Mm-hmm. Um, we were in an interesting building near Times Square on 41st Street, and I made some good friends there, but I felt like I went, I did the part-time version of it, uh-huh. so it took a few years to, to graduate, and in the meantime was working as an art handler on a truck to begin with, and then at Gavin Brown's. Uh, up through the time I graduated mm-hmm. and I, th- I feel like that was my real education was being able to have a studio but also meeting artists meeting dealers meeting collectors meeting uh, the art workers in the industry yeah and realizing what what art is and how it's traded and and how people work in the city it's such it's a different education than the one we get right in in the university or in the art schools, you know. Yeah. But it's a big part of it. Yeah. And you really do have to just kind of be on the street to learn that stuff. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and you have to, tr- I mean, working and working at the same time, um, having a, jo- a job and a studio at the same time was made for graduating a very easy transition. Yeah. And to keep, you know, the necessity of keeping a studio in some way and uh, also making an income at the same time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think that was, I, nev- I you know, I never met, I didn't meet a professor that I 
had some kind of great connection with there, mm -hmm. or uh, I didn't find a mentor in that context. Well, maybe your mentor was the city in a yeah. way. It's, yeah. you know, I would imagine for a lot of people who want to come to New York, that if you do go to school here, it's kind of a landing strip in a way, or you know, it's that first step into the pool mm -hmm. because it's kind of intimidating to come here and just, okay, now I'm gonna get a studio, a job, and an apartment. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah. not easy. No. I remember when I was in school right before I was about to graduate, I had a, a very well-known professor who came into my studio and he was just like, so what are you gonna do? And I said, I'm gonna move to New York. And he's like, well, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a big transition. Yeah. No, I remember running into you on the street, like the day you moved out, you had that old car. Oh, the, And you had the yeah. plants, and you were like giving away your plants. Really? I don't even remember. <laughs> yeah. And I think you also had like, you used to make those little drawings of plants. Yeah, yeah. Plant systems, mm -hmm. like watering systems. Yeah, because I built in my studio a little Home Depot supplied me with all these I kind of made it like a miniature garden thing that would mm -hmm. water itself and it was on a timer yeah. and then I was painting those yeah I guess I had to get all that stuff away Yeah. and I had that was it 57 Plymouth oh wait what was it a Valiant, Valiant. it was a push button Valiant uh -huh. I think it was a 57 with the powder blue leather seats yeah. the bench seats and yeah. I had one tape and it was Jimmy Smith's um, I think it was back at the Chicken Shack, maybe. And it was recorded the year that the car was made, and that's all it would play. That's all you listened to. It was a great car. Yeah. I used to pick beautiful. up, because um, I was, my second year of grad school, I was the artist, visiting artist liaison. Mm -hmm. And uh, I figured out that's a great icebreaker, because I would pick him up at the New Haven train, train station, station. And it was, you know, awkward as a student. You're like, you're trying to find these artists, and you don't know what to say. Uh -huh. And you're like, oh, hey, how's it going? And you bring them out in the, the 57 slant six Plymouth Valiant's waiting and everyone has a car story. Mm -hmm. It's like the perfect icebreaker that, oh man, my dad used to, or, you know, some story would come out. I remember Fred Tomaselli was really interested in the car. You know, mm -hmm. he had some sort of relationship to that car, I think. But yeah, it was a great, it was a great icebreaker. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I had to move. I went to Skowhegan after, right after school. So oh, I was probably okay. moving, going up there. Yeah. This is a big, you know, moving's stressful. Right. Although back then, I guess I didn't really have much. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I remember seeing you, and you just had your car. Yeah. And I guess you were driving to Maine that day or something. I didn't even, yeah, and I I just left that car somewhere at some point. <laughs> it just died on me, and I just <laughs> left it. It's sitting on a, it's sitting in New Haven somewhere on the street. Uh, when on I got cinder back. blocks. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, so... So you moved to the city, you got yourself up and running, and when did you start making the work that was shim-based, basically, like the sculptures and the sculptural, I don't know, how do you describe that, that work? Well, I, desc I describe them as paintings, actually, I, I mean, I, and I say that uh, tongue-in-cheek, I think that there's yeah. a, uh, everything I've made since 2008 has, I consider painting, mm -hmm. um, or images in some way. Um, the long story, I'll, I'll give you the medium length story, but uh, and going back to grad school, like grad school wasn't, like I didn't professionalize during graduate school. Mm -hmm. I made a lot of different things in a lot of different ways and didn't figure anything out really, maybe until the very end. And the thing that I kept of all of the work was these very small, earnest, abstract paintings on panel, mm -hmm. on scrap pieces of MDF or plywood and they were just dense, brushy, thick paint um, abstractions, lots of color, lots of brush marks. And uh, I, I got a studio in Brooklyn and kept making those. And then I, spur of the moment, decided to move to Austin, uh, where my girlfriend was, mm -hmm. and uh, got a job at the local museum there, the Blanton. And uh, I didn't know how long I was gonna stay. Uh, but I, I made a studio there mm -hmm. and didn't meet anybody, really. Didn't make, again, it was a hard place for me to meet people. And so I made a little studio in front of the TV, kept the TV on when I wasn't working and just continued to make these panels, small panels, these small abstract panels. And then moved back to New York uh, in the fall of 2008 because I got a job at Paula Cooper Gallery, mm -hmm. being their art handler. And uh, I continued to make them a little bit um, but 
for whatever reason, re-entering this art system, uh, I felt embarrassed by those little paintings because wow. they, they sort of showed so much of me or, or my earnestness. And I started to work back into them. And that's when the collage process started, which was a means of covering them up. Yeah. Uh, but that, it took a long time. And I wanted to make a painting quickly to see what that would be like. Mm -hmm. And I had encountered the shim, the wooden wedge in my, you know, any work that I had done in construction or building things. And I decided to, I was, I mean, and working in the context of Paula Cooper, I was very involved with um, minimalism and Andre and LeWitt and, yeah. and thinking about their work and, and systems of making images. And so then I started to combine these objects into what I also considered a painting, yeah. but a different kind of painting. Uh, and yeah, it sort of just happened upon it. And um, they've been a consistent place that I can go back to as a means of continuing to work in the studio. If I get frustrated with one thing, then I know I can go back and make this other kind of painting as a way of continuing to work. Yeah. Which is, uh, again, it's not, not about expression, but it's about continuing to, to work for work's sake, in yeah. a sense. Well, all your work seems very tied to the process. Mm -hmm. And um, it's funny because when I've, all the work that I've seen of yours, I don't really go to any specific artists quickly. You know, mm -hmm. it kind of feels like you're just working within this process to create an image. Mm -hmm. But um, it's, you know, there's some work that you see and you think about what, oh, maybe they're looking at this artist or this is kind of the dialogue. They're working within, mm -hmm. you know, this era that's really interesting to them. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's a lot of painters now who are clearly looking at color field paintings mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But yours seems to, uh, for me, just looking at it, it's kind of in its own world or something. But how big is the influence? Because that's interesting to hear about the Paula Cooper. You know, being around that work, I can imagine it's a there's a lot of work there that has that sort of minimal. You know, mm -hmm. whether it's Andre or or you know even Dan Walsh or like people like that. You know, mm -hmm. was that did that have an impact on you? Or, or sure, yeah, yeah, totally. I but, mean, I think I'm I'm very much I'm very sponge like in terms of. And actually, I have to be careful about what I see mm -hmm. in order not to absorb it in some way that um, I might become fixated on. I mean, I don't think that's that's that big a danger, but I, uh, yeah, working, I mean, I don't think there was anything I, well, when I was working at Gavin's, the idea was, oh, I want to be, uh, I want to make abstract paintings the way that Elizabeth Payton makes figurative paintings. Yeah. And so that was sort of the scale and the sort of the brushiness of them. I over, tend to overwork them. She has such a light touch, mm -hmm. but the uh, that was kind of the thinking at the time, I think. And um, Apollo's, I mean, actually more than LeWitt and Andre was uh, Schoonhoven, the Zero Group artist who yeah. uh, made those, you know, systems, the grids, the cardboard, uh, the boxes, all those things were very attractive to me. And I remember picking them up and holding them and, and uh, becoming fascinated by them. Yeah. And I think that that really pushed into the shim work, as well as the, his biographical narrative of being a, you know, have, having a postal working job every day at the same time as, as making these yeah. funky little, I don't know what they are, I mean, constructions or, yeah. or uh, objects. And, uh, Nowadays, I mean, I, I work very closely with Sherry Levine as her assistant, so I, that influences me. It's not necessarily visible, but I do often think of, of um, approaching objects as, as things for desire mm -hmm. or things for um, quotation or, and, you know, a little bit of irony sometimes as well. Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, I think influences and stuff I see sometimes, but at this point, I think I'm kind of on my own sort of path. Right. And uh, that's such I, a good feeling. You yeah. Know, well, it's it's kind of I guess you get to that point. Most artists get to the point to where early on you're you wear your influences, or you know, it's just it's natural, mm -hmm. and then you just keep working and working, working, and sooner or later, it just becomes your diet, your kind of you know language. Right. Made up of. 
you know, you have those people in schools and stuff who say, well, I don't want to look at anyone because I don't want to be influenced or my work to look like anyone else's. But it's like you have to know the language that you're speaking in and then create your own voice, you know, through that language. Yeah. And um, I think over time, it's just inherent. Like if you're making work over and over, you'll see a lot of things and it'll creep in there kind of Mm -hmm. unconsciously Mm -hmm. and influence. But it's it's your own working process in the studio that overrides everything else really Mm -hmm. you know yeah and it's very important to me that when i do go down a path or choose to start to make something that it is it will be generative Mm -hmm. on its own yeah that it does have it is catalytic it will uh it's not a dead end in some way like i will never be finished with it and i think sometimes influence can paint you into a corner in a sense Mm -hmm. and so trying to navigate a way where I can, you know, always work. Yeah. Always be involved with the studio. My theory is to look at so much stuff mm-hmm. that I just can't even <laughs> pick one thing. You know, it's uh-huh. kind of like the person who's, let's say, they're listening to nothing but, you know, Bob Dylan uh-huh. and every day and they're a musician. I uh-huh. mean, their work, their songs are probably going to wear a little bit of that influence. Yeah. But if you're listening to music from all over the world every day, just... You know, it, it's almost like you're diluting your your influence pool to where sure. <laughs> where it just it might some things might get in there, but you're just doing your own thing. Yeah, you know? yeah. I get that way with music. I, I mean, I listen. I can't listen to one kind of music. Uh-huh. Every time I get into a rhythm of a certain kind of music, I'll just go into something else. Uh-huh. You know, it's not even intentional. But you know, I was on a, a drum and bass kick for a long time, and then I was going through a lot of African music uh-huh. you know it's kind of like just keep rotating these influences and, right and um, I feel like I do that with work too I just try to see so much stuff that I can't even you know be too influenced by one person because there's so much amazing stuff out there mm-hmm. you know well that probably is also necessity as a teacher I assume is that yeah that you need to know or be able to find context for other people definitely and, and, and to be able to teach them in a way that says oh you're doing this this is Another example of that, especially for young artists, it's very helpful. Yeah. Um, to give them, uh, yeah, the context in which they're making what they're making. Right. And approach their work. Yeah. To be able to to talk to them about you know all these other people who they might be in line with and thinking about the way that they're making imagery. Mm-hmm. I think some teachers come into the studio and approach everything from their angle mm-hmm. on the way they think about their work, and I think that's the last thing you should do. Mm-hmm. Like when you walk into someone else's studio, you're not. Your work leaves. Right, exactly. You know, your attitude on what things are supposed to be leaves, and you talk about what are they trying to say. Right. And and trying to get them to, you know, make that voice as original and as strong as they can, like connecting what they are trying to say and what their work is saying mm-hmm. and making that bond stronger, you know. Mm-hmm. And that and knowing a lot about a lot of different ways of making is, is key to that, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. So, For sure. Yeah, it can make... And make their work a lot stronger. Yeah. Ideally. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think that that also is, you know, there's a certain generosity there that, uh, I don't know, we don't, I don't see that often. I think that the, the, not that you have to be influenced by things in order to be generous, but like a generosity of, of conversation and, mm-hmm. and a generosity. And I don't know, it's, it's something I've been thinking about a little bit is, is how do you, like the collage work can sometimes be, cl- closed off and I, I mean I think that's probably the, the biggest criticism that I've gotten on it is mm-hmm. that it's a it might seem old-fashioned or it might seem like there's no other options available for the viewer it becomes very dense it becomes yeah. uh, very closed and making work that is different from that is in fact generous in some way that that does show everything and has space for somebody to get involved um, on another level with with the process and with the work and yeah. the content. And well, that, that's one thing I noticed about these two is the visual space in them is really nice. Yeah. I mean, you have some that feel like you're saying that second or third layer where mm-hmm. you're working into it. And those are nice, especially in relation to these ones where there's a lot of air and there's a lot of room for your your eye to move around and go back into that space. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that dynamic between the two is really nice. Mm-hmm. So when you're working in the studio, what's your sound? Do you listen to music while you're working? Well, I listen to, I listen to a lot of vocal, uh, classical music. I listen to Bach and Mozart, mm-hmm. and uh, I do, 
I do actually. I'm, I am I'm sort of one of those people, like the Dylan listener. Like I do listen to uh, dead shows. Yeah. Over and over again. You get streaky. I guess. Or you go into a. Yeah. And I can listen to the same thing over and over again mm-hmm. and not have a problem with it. Yeah. I think that the, there's an availability to it, and I think that that's, uh, it's, it also goes into this automation idea of, of the same song played for 30 years and, and the choices that are made throughout that repetition yeah. are, are interesting to me. And um, I, I like the, the more spacey, um, parts of it quite yeah. a bit and it's it's pretty specific to to that music like in certain years that I'm mm-hmm. interested in um, but it can be it's a go-to thing where I I can listen to it and find space to work at the same time but otherwise if I'm listening to something I often get distracted by it and so I would if I'm focusing I don't listen to anything mm-hmm. at all yeah it makes sense though because thinking about like say a classical composition mm-hmm. and hearing different interpretations of it it's right. kind of like when you're working you have this idea and you're doing different permutations of it yes it's kind of a nice i do that a lot with jazz songs like mm-hmm. if i'm listening to like say this morning april in paris comes on and it's mm-hmm. Thelonious monk and then i'll now we have the ability to just go onto a music listening service and just type in that song title yeah. and there's 50, 100 different versions of that song. And I'll just listen to that April in Paris over and over, Frank Sinatra. It'll be, you know, Billie Holiday, all the different iterations mm-hmm. of it. And it's something weird and cool happens when you've heard it the 25th time, but in a totally different version. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's an interesting way to, to think about how to creatively, like how different things can be even when the structure is the same. Right. It's kind of like, you know, if you think about painting, we're all just doing the same thing over and over yeah. and over again. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so new. Like, everyone who does it has a different take on it. Yeah. It's well, really yeah, I often have said that, I mean, painting, in dealing with painting, is like the every every song has already been written, mm-hmm. in a sense, or the same three chords are used yeah. over and over again, but it's just the all the choices that are made surrounding that, that same song, that same painting, um, create you know all these different permutations all yeah. these differences that are interesting and yeah in, in a sense all the paintings are predestined to happen they just haven't happened yet and they have uh you know that variation is is down the road but you know it hasn't gotten here yet yeah and so it has a yeah i think that yeah the same song over and over again or the same same band over and over again is pretty pretty interesting to me yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. good thing you like the dead. Yeah, There's probably like a million versions right. of those yeah. songs. Yeah. And they've been cataloged. Yes. Over and over. Oh, yeah. There's, you know, huge nerds out there doing that. What's pretty cool, though. Day. I mean, that's an amazing, you know, thing, a resource to right. go back and listen to all those different versions of things. Yeah. And it's a, the other interesting thing is that it's available. It's not a, um, which, is, which is something I, I, feel like I sort of get at with with painting or I want to get at is that uh, you know all these these processes and these images are in a sense available especially with the shim work which is made from a Mm ready-made source like anybody could make these paintings yeah and uh, anybody could could build these things with the materials that I use Um, that there is a kind of an open source uh, approach to it that would be less, I don't know, less less privileged, less author based, yeah, and more, um, more open, yeah. And that's yeah. what's beautiful about music too is anyone can pick up a guitar, right? And now we have GarageBand or whatever. Everyone can record, and mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing how um, direct things are now and how easy it is to to be creative mm-hmm. and not, you know, it's very very hard to be creative, mm-hmm. <laughs> but. To be creative, you can just, you know, pick up a guitar, pick yeah. up a paintbrush. Yeah. Same colors. Everyone has the access to the same materials. Mm-hmm. So sure. what do you have coming up? Well, I'm going to France for a month on a residency. And we, um, nice. it's myself and organized, it's a organization called Non-Objective Sud. And they have a, a curated residency show every summer. Mm-hmm. And this summer, my friend Jesse Willenbring is organizing it. And bringing myself, an artist named Brian Calvin, and from LA, from LA, musician, 
Is he? Yes, he is. Know that. He uh, was involved in Chicago music oh, okay. for Carnation, I believe. Oh, but wow. yeah, he, he played music in, okay. in Chicago. And uh, Alicia McCarthy, who's a, a Bay Area a mission school painter. Mm-hmm. who And I haven't met her yet. So Sounds like it's going to be... Where is it? It's in the south of France. It's uh, north, just north of Avignon. Oh, so sounds brutal. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to have a, a real hard time cheese. getting yeah. through that. <laughs> yeah. So, and we're supposed to collaborate, actually. We're going to make wall drawings. Nice. So I'm, I'm curious what that's going to be like. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Cool. So I, got, I got that and uh, nothing else on the books yet. That's a bit, pretty good thing to have on the books. Yeah. Cool. It'll be a nice vacation. All right. Thanks so much for taking the time out. Thank to talk. you. It was great. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.